Well, uh, good evening. My name is Luke. Uh, I think the strictest babysitter I ever had would have been uh, my Bible study leader. I won't name him, but anyway. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so we will be reading from the book of Galatians today, uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through to 25. I'll just give you a second to open that up in your books. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why, then, was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through the angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith... We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Thanks for reading, Luke. Well, guys, it seems that promises almost are made to be broken aren't they? It's so easy for us as people to break promises. It's so easy for us to make big promises and then not be willing or even able to be able to fulfill them. I say this fully aware that I'm going to get married in four weeks and Claire, I'll keep those promises. It's all good. Uh, But when there's broken promises, it's actually really quite hard on us, isn't it? As we relate as people, as we relate to one another, if someone says they'll do something for you, and then doesn't follow through on that, there's some hurt there. There's a breakdown of trust. There is a, there's a deep sadness. There are some really personal kind of costs that come when people break their promises. I did some relationships on what, uh, I, did some, I did some research on the impacts of broken promises on relationships, particularly in the workplace. Here's what one website has said. Um, the personal consequences of breaking your word can be very serious. Your professional standing will decline as more people lose their trust in you. You may come up with all manner of excuses for your behavior, which can further damage your reputation. And when you feel shame or guilt, you could start to suffer from stress or a crisis of confidence. Promises are hard. Promises are easy to make, but very hard to keep. And I'm sure I'm not the only one here in this room who's made some promises that's then found themselves unable or unwilling. 
What about when it comes to God? When it comes to the God of the universe who has made many, many, many promises, do we have an attitude that's kind of like this? Do we, do we lose our trust in him? Do we trust our God a bit less if we're unsure where he's at with keeping his promises? Has God broken promises before? These are some really good questions, and, and we see in Galatians chapter 3 this evening that Paul has a lot to say about the character of God when it comes to keeping uh, his promises that he has made, particularly to a guy called Abraham. Here's where we ended up last week. In chapter 3, verse 14, um, Paul to the Galatian church said this. He said, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is the fight, this is the argument, this is the battle that Paul is having with the church in Galatia 2,000 years ago in this letter that he's writing to them. He's wanting them to see that the promises of God and the blessing given to Abraham is received by faith. This church is one that received the news by faith, but then instantly went back to following the law and doing good works and trusting in themselves and their own works to be saved. But Paul says that we are saved by faith. We have been redeemed, and by faith we are made right with God. Entirely through trusting the God of the Bible who created all things and has fulfilled every promise in the Lord Jesus. And so we're going to think a bit about the heart of God in that. So firstly, God is a promise-making God. What Paul wants to drill into the head of these Galatians is that God is a God who makes and who keeps his promises. And the best way that we all know how to do that is with a sermon illustration. This is exactly what he does. We love sermon illustrations, whether it's a story of Nigel from when he was growing up, or whether it's James Macbeth talking about him as a teacher back at Barker in the good old days. Um, we see that sermon illustrations are used to teach uh, what we are learning. And Paul does this to the Galatian church as he talks about the promises of God. He says, brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant, that has been duly established, so it is in this case. No one can change the terms of the covenant, of the promise that God has made with his people. You know, if a legally binding contract has been established, it's awfully hard to change the terms. Um, Rosie Campbell helpfully uh, pointed out that this wasn't super true and that people can change wills and things like that. So thank you, Rosie. You can take that up with the Apostle Paul at some point. Um, but once a will has been established, once the terms of a contract have been established, nothing can change that. If I'm someone who's writing a will and I'm like, oh yes, I'll give my money, some money to that child and some money to this charity and things like that, it doesn't matter how much bickering or infighting there is between these people, what I've said and what I've legally agreed to will come to pass. The promise that has been made in this contract will come to pass. This is what Paul says of the promises that God has made. The promises particularly that God made to a man called Abraham. 
who we heard of just in uh, the last verse there. But we see in Genesis. So uh, we're not going to go there now, but I want you to write down in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 12, or not in your Bibles, in your notes or whatever, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, we see God make some big promises to a guy called Abraham and to one of his descendants. And so here is what Paul says next about these promises. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, and, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. God made these promises to a guy called Abraham. Promises of blessing, promises of land, promises of a family, of descendants that will be more than the, scar, the stars that are in the sky. God made these promises, and he didn't make them just to go back on them. That's what Paul is saying. Because if God changes the terms of his promise, then that's actually against his character. That's actually against his character as a God of truth, as a God who makes and who keeps promises. And so let's, let's just pull apart what he's saying a bit here. He goes back, not only in this passage does he use a sermon illustration, but he also goes back to the original Hebrew. So, yeah, this is just like how to preach, but from Paul. And so he goes back into the grammar of the Hebrew in Genesis, and he says, Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. That is that God made these promises to Abraham and to one of his descendants, to his seed, to one child that is to come, that in whom all of these things would be fulfilled. God made these promises to Abraham and to one of his children. And spoiler alert, it's Jesus. We're going to think a bit more about what this means for us a bit later. But this is the promise. And the law doesn't come and change the terms of the promise and make it a contract. No, it's still a promise. The Galatian church 2,000 years ago and us today are still children of a promise, not of a contract. If I were to say to you, I'm going to give you $1 million, there's a few questions that you have to ask. Firstly, where did you get a million dollars? Because I, I definitely don't have any. But if you, were to receive, uh, if you were to receive these promises, you have to ask yourself, firstly, am I trustworthy? Am I someone who has proven myself faithful with these, this kind of promise in the past? Am I trustworthy? Am I willing? Am I willing to give you a million dollars? And am I able? Do I have a million dollars with which to give you? That's a promise. If I am to say, I will give you a million dollars, that's my word, that's what I'm saying. I'm not going to say that to anyone because I'm very unable to do that. But the difference between a promise and a contract is if I say, I will give you a million dollars if you help the Connect team wipe down the chairs at the end of church. I'll give you a million dollars if you come to Gordon Macker's afterwards. All of a sudden, the, the promise is done away with and we are no longer living and speaking in terms of a promise, but actually a contract. The responsibility would then be on you, no longer on me as the one who makes the promise. The responsibility is on you, on your success, 
on your living up to a certain standard, on your perfection. And the moment that you fail or you don't complete the terms as exactly as we've talked about, the moment you backslide, the moment you screw up, then I have every right to no longer give you this a million dollars. This is the kind of thinking that was happening in the Galatian church. This is the kind of thinking that actually God has made us a promise, but we need to keep doing. We need to keep achieving. They weren't trusting in the God that has made a great promise. They were trusting in the terms of a contract. The context of what Paul is saying is for us to be made right with God, for us to be saved, for us to have a relationship with the God of the whole entire universe, and whether that is by trusting in him or by working, whether that is in by faith or by following the law to a T. But actually, God makes these promises and God gives the law in grace. We see that in verse 18. God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. God gave the law in grace. God made the promise in grace. Abraham couldn't have looked back on when God made that promise and said, see God, see what I did, see how I twisted your arm to make you give this to me. No, he had nothing on the table. He had no right to claim anything. He was old. His wife was barren. They had no way to have kids. They just had to trust that God would make this promise and that God would keep this promise. Is God trustworthy? Is God willing? Is God able? That's the question for Abraham back then. And I think that's a question for us now as well. Do we trust that God will be making and keeping these promises. That brings us to the next section, as, as the law is given. The law is given, and which maybe kind of muddies things, maybe kind of makes things a little less clear. So we're going to be thinking about why we have the law, the Old Testament law that the Jewish people adhere to. Why did the law come? It's a great question, and it's exactly what Paul asks in verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. The law was given for sin. The law was given for sin. This passage, um, this verse and another verse in a second, have say two things about why we have the law. That is that people are sinful, so the law was added for sin. And people are unable to keep that law and save themselves from their sins. So the law was always going to be temporary. Those are the two reasons. The law was added for sin. The law was added to be temporary. The law was added for sin. The law was added to be temporary. The law was added because of transgressions, because of hurt, of sin, of disobedience, of rejecting the king of the universe, of rejecting and, and not trusting in the promises of this king and his character. The point of the law is for sin. It's not that these rules or these regulations that the Jewish people followed were a bad thing. No, if they weren't, then if they were bad, then God would not have given them to them. But they served to show how the Jewish people actually fell short and actually were sinful. The law showed, it was like a, like a little line, a little boundary, and that it showed how often in our hearts we step far past it. It's kind of like a little, a little meter that showed how broken we are. 
and showed how hurt we are. It's no longer just sin being some weird kind of vibe, but actually measurable and with consequences. Because there's a few things to humanity that we each need to know and we each need to remember. And that is firstly, that people suck. And secondly, that people really struggle sometimes to see that they suck. The law was added to show that actually before the holy and the perfect and the beautiful God of the whole entire universe, that we have fallen short that we have said, screw you, God, I'm going to live my own way. One of the kids at morning church the other day described sin as a scribble all over our heart, which I think is a profoundly beautiful and and helpful image. That actually sin isn't just what we do, sin isn't um, doing X, Y, Z, but actually sin is a problem from the inside. Sin is a problem inside me. Our human condition is that we are broken. Our hearts are broken, and the law helps us see that. Tim Keller, who is a um, minister in America, has written a book on Galatians, which I've been reading and found, and found super helpful so far. And he says this about, about the law. He says, the law did not come to tell us about our salvation, that is how we're saved, how we can be right with God, but about sin. Its main purpose is to show us our problem, that we are lawbreakers, and to prove to us that we cannot be the solution since we are unable to be perfect law keepers. We as people are breakers of God's law, and we cannot be God, the law keepers. The law was shown, the law was added to be like this giant magnifying glass narrowing in on our heart to show us that we have broken the law, that we have lived against God, that we are sinful, and that we are broken. The law functioned to to give us a way as well to to express the way that we should live in the salvation that God has won for his people. But it was never an ultimate thing. We're going to see in a second that the law was kind of like a babysitter. That's the question that we've asked earlier. The law was like a babysitter. But does the law change the terms of the promise? Does the law make this promise a contract? That's kind of what Paul asks in verse 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law could have been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Christ Jesus, might be given to those who believe. The law isn't an evil thing. The law isn't something that changes the promises and therefore the character of God. The Old Testament law that we hear so much about serves to point out our sin and serve to point to our Savior. Because the fulfillment of God's promises is the one who frees us from this law, our glorious Lord Jesus. God's people, after God had made those promises to Abraham, waited years. Years and years and years for him to show up for God to fulfill his promises, for God to do exactly what he said that he would. And over time, you can see, I I think, how they went to then trust in their own works instead of trusting in the promise. And that's heartbreaking because they've forgotten the character of the God that they're trying to please in the first place. 
I heard the story the other day of a Jewish man in the, in the 21st century who really, really wanted to meet God. He loved God. He wanted to know him and to please him. And so he followed the law. He did exactly what he needed to. He'd done all the rituals. He'd done all the, the rites of passage. And he was waiting for Yom Kippur, that is like the Day of Atonement, a once-a-year festival and celebration where he can go to the uh, synagogue and have his sins forgiven. And so he can meet God. So the day arrived. He got here. He did all of his washing that he needed to. And he went to the temple and the rabbi said, sorry, you can't actually meet God today because you've got leather shoes. He was crushed. He was heartbroken. He was sad because he felt that God did not want to meet him. But he was thinking in terms of the contract and not the promise. Because it's, it's to people like this man, to people like us who are sinful and who try to get to God on our own way that Jesus has come, that the law has been fulfilled, that the promises made to Abraham have arrived. Here we are. Verse 19. Why was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was always going to be temporary. The law was always going to be pointing to the one whom the promise to one to whom the promises had been made. The law was temporary. And Paul uses the image of a babysitter to show why this is the case. Um, I don't have it on the screen, so in your Bibles in front of you, verses uh, 23 to 25. Before the coming of this faith, that is faith in Christ Jesus, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The people were slaves to the law. The people like this Jewish man that I mentioned were slaves to the law, to doing the thing, to doing their works, to doing their rituals. And so often they forgot the character of God who is trustworthy. And so the law was always going to be something that is temporary so that we could wait the glory that would come. The glory that would come in the Lord Jesus who has already come 2,000 years ago. This is a babysitter that was quite strict and a babysitter that people would really struggle with. I asked a bunch of people uh, last week about the worst babysitting story that they have. That's what I'm going to start doing, just crowdsourcing, crowdsourcing sermon illustrations. And um, a few people... A lot of people gave us lots of stories about poo. I decided not to, to say those. I do know that Will Jansen uh, one time uh, had a babysitter he didn't like, so he just vomited. <laughs> is, that, is that true? <laughs> Excellent. I can't wait to hear more stories later. Um, but my friend Laura told me of her brother who uh, had babysit her, babysat her daughter once. Uh, Marty is her daughter. She's two. She's very cute. And Laura and her husband went out for a while and came back, and the baby was devastated. She was, she was in tears. She was sobbing. They, inconsolable. They couldn't work out what was going on with her. And David, her brother, was like, oh, I don't know. I've, I've, I've tried everything. He forgot that children needed food. <laughs> Despite his best intentions, he could not actually give her life. 
He could actually not do what her parents could. He actually, as a babysitter, could not replace her parents and could not fulfill and do everything that her parents could. The law was like this. The law was a babysitter that that child was waiting to be gone so that the glorious fulfillment of the promises in Christ have arrived. Jesus has come. The seed of Abraham, the one who the promise is to and who the promise is about, has come, has lived, has died, has rose again. We no longer have a strict babysitter. We no longer have a strict teacher. But because of our glorious Lord Jesus, who fully and utterly fulfilled the law, who fully realized the law so that we didn't have to, to to give us his righteousness, to free us from being bound by it so that we may joyfully trust and obey him. We don't need to share the heartbreak of the Jewish man that I spoke of because we've been freed from that law in Christ. We're going to be thinking more about that over the next few weeks, but how beautiful it is for our hearts to embrace what God has done for us in freeing us from the law, in the law only being temporary, in the law pointing out our sins, but having our sins forgiven in Jesus. That is the promise of God. And so as we, as we end, as we think about the character of God in making and keeping promises, what does that mean for you? Do you trust what God has said? Is God willing and able to keep his promises? Has he ever let anyone down before? Because we can know him. We can trust him. And if you are trusting in Christ, there are some big and humongous promises made for you. I did some work earlier this week, and I just I read through the whole of Galatians. It's only six chapters. It's only four pages in this Bible. And here are some of the promises that we have, that people who trust in Jesus have in Christ. Jesus gave himself to rescue us from this current evil age. We are justified by faith in Jesus. We are given a new life with Christ living in us. We are children of Abraham. We are, we are blessed by God. We receive the promise of the Spirit. We're no longer under the law. We are children of God. Guys, there is, there is so much. We, all are, we are one in Christ Jesus with one another. We are heirs according to the promises of God. We are adopted as God's children. We have the Spirit in our hearts. We are fully known by God. We're children of freedom and set free for freedom. We're free to serve one another, crucified the flesh, and we will reap a harvest. These are the promises that God has for you in Christ Jesus. Do you trust him? I hope you do. I pray that you do. And I'm going to ask God to help us do so now. Please pray with me. Our glorious and our mighty and our powerful promise-making God, we thank you for the promises that you made to Abraham. We thank you for the promise of blessing, of land, of offspring. We thank you for the promise of saving your people. And we thank you that that was fulfilled in Jesus. We thank you that the law doesn't take away from the promise or change the terms of the promise. But Lord, we thank you that we can know and trust you because you are willing and able to keep your promises. Help us do this always in Jesus' name. Amen.
Uh, Josh, welcome back. Thank you. And uh, thanks here. for preaching for us tonight. What a great place to land with that examination of that just listing of all of the mm. promises of God and what we are, what our hope is in. Yeah. And I, I love the idea. That's a really bad way of phrasing what I'm about to say. I love the reality mm. that our God is a promise-keeping God, mm. which is just beautiful. Yeah. Um, thanks, everyone, for your questions that have uh, come in. Uh, Josh will be uh, doing Sermon Extra at... With Leo? With Leo, I think, yeah, <laughs> yeah at some point nice. this week. Uh, so um, uh, we won't get to all of the questions tonight, uh, but we have uh, got a couple that we're going to have a go at. Number one, well, Josh is going to have a go at. Uh, first one, how were people righteous before the law was given? Great question. And, and it sort of links, uh, if, if Jesus makes us righteous and the law was temporary... Were people pre-Jesus considered righteous or was their righteousness retrospectively added because of Jesus? Mm. I'll go to the first one because it's less complex and then <laughs> might come back. Um, the answer is the same. By faith. By trusting in God and trusting in the promises of God. We, see, we were seeing last week in Gen- nope, Galatians chapter 3 in verse 6, uh, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, the faith of Abraham saved him and made him right with, right with God. God gave him, God credited him uh, with his righteousness back then. That was long before even the law and long before Jesus. Um, and yet God was able to and, and was kind enough to and was willing to and gave Abraham his righteousness. And so that's the same for people in the Old Testament that trusted in the promises of God and trusted in his character. Um, they kind of, they accounted righteousness. Now in terms of like where the cross fits in with that, can you read that second question again? I can, I got yeah. lost. Uh, no, that's totally fine. If Jesus makes us righteous and the law was temporary, were people pre-Jesus considered righteous or was their righteousness retrospectively given post-Jesus? Yes. I'll answer that in Sermon Extra as I read up on timing. Um, yeah, what do you think? I know you, said, I know you said, I know you said I'm answering, but I'm more than happy for you to have a crack, Nigel. <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm looking forward to hearing what you have in say in Sermon Extra. <laughs> Great. But, um, uh, but they are saved on the basis of a promise. Mm. And what is the basis of that promise? Faith. We'll hear about that in a <laughs> Hey, uh, um, the answer is always Jesus. Um, uh, yes, there is still confetti now falling from Colin's yeah, concert. Yeah, I chose not to point that out. Uh, it's no longer from 2018 Big Fridays. Yeah. We now blame Colin Buchanan, but we still love him. It's okay. Uh, so we get all sorts of questions here on, sermon, on Slido. Uh, Josh, next question. Mm-hmm. If the law is not for me... How do I work out what sin is? Mm. Great question. Um, Jesus says, love God, love others. Love God, uh, yeah, with everything, with all of your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, That's a pretty helpful question um, in in terms of what Jesus has put forward. Have you loved God with 100% of absolutely everything ever? If the answer is no, which it is, that's sin. That's, a, that's how, like one of the ways that our sinful heart has kind of manifested in that way. And have you loved 
other people as you love yourself? The answer also is no. In terms of specifics, I think we see, um, we actually see later in Galatians chapter 5 kind of some specifics in terms of what sin is. We see quite a, quite a lot throughout Scripture. Um, but basically, it's every time that we put ourselves above God and we say, screw you, I'm in charge. Um, but here we see in chapter 5, verse 19, I don't want to, I think you're preaching on this, I don't want to Steal your thunder. Steal away, it's okay. Great. Um, Paul says the acts of the flesh, he's comparing the, the sinful flesh versus the spirit, and he's kind of talking about the, uh, what it looks like to live pleasing the flesh and pleasing yourself or pleasing the spirit. So I say uh, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I want to say again that these are not kind of the things you do that disqualify you from being made right with God, but these are kind of the ways that our sinful heart acts, and they're kind of symptoms of a sinful heart. Um, but Jesus died to save us from that, uh, and his spirit is at work in us in helping us say no to sin, repent of sin, and say yes to Jesus and to the glory that it is to follow him. Um, in terms of specifics, uh, and, and if you're worried, maybe worried about a particular sin, um, we're in community with one another, and we're actually able to point one another to Scripture and point one another to the standard that God has set and how often we fall short, um, so that we may rebuke one another and encourage one another to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. Um, are we going to do two more? Uh, Winner. Josh. Yes. There's a few questions about the angels thing in verse 19. Nice. Yeah. So uh, who is the mediator in verse 19, and what is the significance of the angels entrusting the law to this mediator? And then someone else wrote, law given through angels, ha, huh. mm. with lots of question marks. Yeah. It's a great question. There's a guy called F.F. Bruce who is a really respected Bible scholar and he says that there are 300 different options and no one knows. But I won't end there. Um, the mediator, the, the law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A lot of people seem to say that that mediator was Moses. And so like Moses who, like on Mount Sinai, God spoke and revealed himself to Moses and gave him the law in terms of the Ten Commandments. And Moses then went down to the people of Israel and gave them that. He was kind of like the mediator there. Um, but then uh, the angels thing is very confusing. Nigel had something helpful to say earlier. <laughs> I think um, I, it's possible. So uh, it's likely that the version of the New Testament that Paul is reading, of oh, sorry, version of the Old Testament Paul is reading is a Greek translation called the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, there is an obscure reference to angels and the law uh, and it's possible that Paul is actually slightly mockingly critiquing the Jewish people's uh, belief in angels, the importance of the law, based on the fact the law came from angels. And essentially, Paul is saying, you, you even claim the angels as having some authority in the bringing of the law, and therefore the law is so important. But he goes on, he's like, 
but really it's about Jesus. Do you want Jesus or angels? So I wonder if he's introducing it there because of this little obscure reference and to actually argue against an argument they may be arguing that we don't know if they're arguing. And so we go back to speculation and we write it down on our piece of paper and take it to heaven to ask God. Yeah. Take it up with the Apostle Paul once again. Excellent. All right, Josh, uh, let's finish with uh, another really helpful um, pastoral question that someone um, has asked. It's always good to finish with uh, application again. Mm. How do I find the balance in cutting out sin and not falling into the trap of legalism and the Mm. idea that, again, my efforts can save me? Mm. So how do I find that balance in in wanting to get rid of sin Mm. but also not therefore find myself in legalism yeah it's a really good question because we don't want to stumble back into trusting in our own works i think it's just constantly coming before jesus coming before the lord of the universe as uh as sinful broken human beings and saying god please help me please forgive me which he has and he will in christ um continually recognizing our sin and asking him to to change us, to shape our desires as the Spirit is in at work at us, in us to help us to say no to sin and yes to Him. Um, Jesus, when Jesus uh, says the Lord's Prayer to model what healthy prayer and a healthy relationship with uh, God as Father looks like for His people and the healthy things for, to pray, says, deliver me from evil, evil and leave me not into temptation. Um, so I think, yeah, trying to remove temptation is a key thing. Um, yeah, I've got some software on my phone that helps me not be led into temptation. Um, that doesn't mean that sin isn't there, but it's a way of actually helping me not be led into temptation while I trust in Jesus and while I ask for him to shape and to change me. Um, yeah, if I was depending solely on that software on my phone to save me or solely upon any sort of boundaries or dedication or anything that I could do, then I might have wandered back in the direction of trusting in works and not Jesus. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, Thanks Josh. My Thanks pleasure. for preaching tonight. And we look forward to Sermon Extra. Lots of other good questions. Yes, I'm looking forward which, to answering uh, some of them. Which you and Leo can pick up. Which would be good. Great. Thanks, everyone.